This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you for joining me on today, and welcome to those of you who are listening for the very first time. We're currently covering a topic called, So, You Want to Be a UXer? Where we're focusing on different things that people should take into consideration if they happen to be interested in becoming a user experience professional. The discipline is extremely popular today, but as is the case with any other discipline, it's good to have a good, sound, and sober understanding of what being a user experience professional is all about, as well as knowing what kinds of personalities are best suited to be a UX professional. We've been talking about personality traits. Uh, We started off the series talking about that. And currently, we've been talking about different types of work methods, methodologies. We've been talking about deliverables, artifacts. We've been talking about different types of activities to see, is this something you really want to do? I hope you're not chasing it for the money. A lot of people today are. There have been a lot of articles published over the last few years talking about how up and coming of a field this is. And so people read the articles, they hear about or they read the salary reports and they're thinking, you know what? I think that's what I want to do. That's pretty cool. And it is easy, and I've seen a lot of people do this, to see UX people do our thing, get excited and want to opt in. But really, how much of it did you really see? And a lot of times people have not seen very much and they make a decision based on scant evidence. And that's not really going to be good. It's not that we're trying to keep people from getting involved in UX. We want people to make good, solid decisions. And no matter what discipline you were getting into, no matter what career path you were pursuing, don't you want to understand it? Don't you want to know what you're getting yourself into? We, we joke and we've said this a couple of times on other episodes about how some people feel that they want to be a doctor. And it's not because they care about people. It's not because they're excited about learning more about the science. A lot of times people want to be a doctor because of the prestige. They want to be a doctor because of the, the money that they feel is associated with being a doctor. They, they want to be in that high profile type of scenario. And, and all of those reasons are, are, are illegitimate. They're, those are not reasons to pursue any particular field. It is critical that we go after something because we'll enjoy it. It's critical that we go after something because we feel we're a fit. It's critical that we go after something because it happens to match our passion points. And for so for all these reasons, I've been pretty much very methodically and painstakingly, in a sense, talking about different aspects, just so people can be sober minded. Just take a look at the things that we're talking about. See if this is really for you. Don't just go and dive in. Uh, uh, and, and there's another thing I've got to mention. I've talked about this before. I'm going to mention it again. Uh, uh, now, how that a lot of people 
get into UX because of a lack of understanding of what UX is and people opt into UX and they think that it's easy. This is one of the biggest things that's happening today. People opting into UX because they think it's very easy. It's the anybody can do it. And, And please make sure you hear the anybody can do it thing with a sober ear as well. Can anybody do it in general? Put your mind to it and go do it. Is it for you? It, it's that that whole anybody can do it is very uh, uh, it's downright delusional because it doesn't present the 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 evidence. It doesn't present the different factoids, the key information, so that you can see it's not can anybody do it. It's do I really want to do it or should I be doing it? These are the types of things. And if you think that anybody can do it because it doesn't take anything to do it, you are in for an extremely rude awakening. It may not hit you the first time you you get a job, but as you continue to progress, a lot of people have found out, you know what, this really isn't for me, but they want to pay the bills. So they do what a lot of people say, uh, they, they call it fake it till you make it kind of thing. And they, they really promote people engaging in a profession, whatever the profession might be, um, from a very insincere, uh, irresponsible, and deceitful perspective. So make sure that you understand what UX is and then pursue it. Make sure that it matches, then pursue it. Make sure that it's for you, then pursue it. The, these are the types of things that we are, are, um, are endorsing today and we're encouraging people to do. So let's pick up where we left off. We were going through a very long list and I'm going to have to pick up the pace here so we don't spend too much more time on this, but we don't want to rush through it uh, either. So we'll try to cover a few topics today and and we may actually not get any more than two done today because we've got some, some research elements that we're going to be talking about and I want to make sure that we present those all on the same episode. One other thing I did want to mention too, we've got a treat for you. I mentioned in a recent episode that we're going to be doing some interviews and I actually have already done one. Uh, I conducted an interview with uh, one of my, uh, one of my fellow UXers that, that uh, helps us serve us here in the metropolitan Detroit area. Uh, And we will be uh, sharing the interview that I conducted with him during the recent CXM Best Practices event through Michigan State University. There's some fantastic information that I am sure a lot of people will get a lot out of. Uh, It's very enlightening. And it's really good to repeat something I said during the interview. It's very important that people hear voices that stand for the discipline. There are a lot of voices out here today, but all of them really don't need to be heard. As we said in some of our other episodes, uh, Mr. Keith Enstone is one of those voices that folks need to hear. He has been practicing in UX circles for quite some time. Uh, I've heard recently that people think that nobody's been practicing real UX beyond the last 10 years. That could not be further from the truth. And in addition, there is a ton of evidence that there are a lot of people that have been practicing different aspects of UX for us for the last two and a half to three decades. So 
Uh, he is one of those voices. I, I am excited to be able to share that with you. So be on the lookout for that. We actually are planning to uh, take a break mid series. <laughs> We're not going to complete this series in a succession. We're going to quote unquote interrupt the current series so that folks can hear that interview. We've been holding on to it for about two weeks now, two, three weeks. We want to get that out there. Very great information. Uh, some things, again, I think people will really enjoy. But let's dive in here. There's a lot of preliminaries, some other things we want to share with you. But let's get back to our list. The first topic up for today easily could have been covered last week. And this is, again, we're talking about different activities that UX people engage in. We're going to be talking about deliverables, uh, methods, methodologies, things of this nature. And the first one we want to talk about tonight is creating task flows. We talked about micro experiences last week. We talked about needs analysis. We talked about, talked about task analysis. And, and uh, when you conduct a task analysis and you identify uh, what task you want to address and then analyze that task and break it up to the point where you understand every step of that task. A task flow is akin to that because you could create or complete a task analysis and just create an outline and list out every step so that you now have your task and you have your subtasks. That's what that really amounts to. But you could also visualize it in a sense or create a visual representation task analysis. Now, how would you do that? Think about a flow chart. When we call it a task flow, if you're familiar with the flow chart, that will help you to understand, since I'm trying to convey this uh, on a podcast, I'm gonna, I, I can't show it to you, but if you can sort of go along with me in your, in your mind here, picture a flow chart. And let's say you have seven steps in that flow chart or seven shapes. If you were, uh, and, and let's say, trying to do this as best I can with what we're working with, say you have a task and it has seven steps. So you have seven shapes. Those seven shapes would represent each one of those seven steps in the task. And that you could then present that to someone to give them a greater understanding of a task. You will have a greater understanding of the task. And as we mentioned last week, this also lends itself to helping to give attention to micro experiences because when, when there, there's several angles to look at with this, when people are not happy with a brand, when they're not happy with an experience, a close examination of their pain points will reveal that the problem is not usually at a high level it's buried somewhere in those micro experiences and those micro interactions. So what our job is as a user experience professional is to have a nice, solid understanding of the entire experience, task by task, scenario by scenario, breaking everything down where when we, we see what the tasks are, that the users are engaging with and we break them down to look at those, those more, those very granular elements. We can strive to make sure that each one of those experiences is 
optimal. Considering the fact, again, that users are usually uncomfortable, dissatisfied, unhappy, annoyed at the micro experience level, if you pay attention to them, it is less likely that that will occur. It is actually more likely that you'll be able to, in giving attention to those micro experiences, you'll be in a better position to make sure that users are happy. You look at the micro experiences, you create a task flow, you conduct research, making sure to give good sound attention to each of those elements and then making sure, okay, this part worked, this part worked, that part worked. Okay, everything is fine within this task. We're happy. We're happy with the data. We're happy with the way that people were able to use the 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 solution that we designed. Nobody had any issues. Nobody expressed any concerns. Okay, check. Now let's move on to the next one. This is another one of those examples. When you look at task flows and micro experiences, it just reminds me again about how people having this mindset that it doesn't take anything to do UX. A lot of people simply do not have the patience to engage in identifying and, 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 and working to optimize things at the micro experience level. They don't want to do it. A lot of people just want to make things look pretty and then they go along their way. And there's a ton of people who are on that particular bandwagon. I even saw something recently where someone was talking about how that the issue of making sure that things are are aesthetically pleasing, a little tongue-tied here, so busy trying to make sure that people are pleased with aesthetics that they're not as concerned with making sure that it works. Yes, people are are more likely to accept a design that is more aesthetically pleasing. According to Don Norman, when a design is more aesthetically pleasing, people have a tendency to be more forgiving. People actually assume that it works because it looks good. That could not be further from the truth. But just making sure that something looks good is not enough. Somebody even referred to it as a law associated with UX. No, it's not. That is not. We we are not supposed to make things look good for the sake of making them look good. Matter of fact, if you're making things look good, but you if you have not done all of the other things that you should be doing, and then your design looks good, that's a bit deceitful and unethical, isn't it? You better believe that it is. We are not trying to make things look pretty for the sake of making them pretty. We need things to work. We need to meet people's needs. We need to make sure that everything is 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 going to support the goals, the mental models of users so that users will not only have a good experience, but that users will that will in turn generate goodwill so that people feel confident, they feel secure that they have that they 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 will entrust their their money, their time, their testimonials on behalf of the brand that they're inter- interacting with. This is what we're really after from a UX standpoint. If something looks good and it does not work, 
people, yeah, they do assume that it is going to work well because it looks good. And people, yeah, it is. Uh, they are more forgiving, but they're also going to be really, really angry if they thought that it was going to work and they find out that it does not. If they thought that it was going to work and then they eventually have problems, that can backfire on you very, very, very quickly. So look at the micro experiences when you can, when time allows it, if it fits with your project, create task flows, make sure that you use them. I have used them as audit points in my designs. I have used task flows to make sure that I've accounted for different things that were communicated to me from a requirements perspective. Go right down the list. Make sure that everything in that design is appropriate because not only are you going to gain wins for your users, you're going to gain wins for the business. You're also going to represent the discipline of UX properly in your organization. You're going to represent the discipline properly as a whole. You're going to help people to, to understand the value that UX brings. You're going to help to drive the UX maturity level in your organization. There is a lot at stake. The relationships that you're building in your organization, the relationships that you're building with your team, all of these things come into play as you're doing the work. So let's make sure that we're paying attention to task flows. Do not underestimate the power of examining micro experiences. These things are critical. The last one that we're going to cover for today, and again, we're going to get into research next week. We're going to talk about personas very quickly. What is a persona? Well, let's play a little etymology game or a little word structure game. It's probably better said. A persona is associated with personalities. It is a snapshot, if you will, and I don't mean that literally. It's not a picture, although it's good to have visuals. It's, it's, it's really a representation of someone that either is using your solution, someone who you would like to be a target user for your solution, for your product. It's, it's, it's trying to help everybody involved in the project get an understanding of who these people are, what their goals are, what are their mental models, what are their pain points, really, which really comes in handy uh, if you're doing a redesign and you can use prior data to help drive these. So you're, you're painting this picture of who these people are and, and, and please know and understand there's a lot of terrible information that's out there today. If you were to go to the search engine and you would look for personas a lot, which a lot of people are doing, and then they see the personas and then they assume that because they see it, that this persona is a solid and accurate representation of what a persona is, could not be further from the truth. There are a lot of things in personas today. You'll see the picture of the individual. You'll see their name. You'll see their age, how many kids they've got, and all this kind of thing. Some of those things work for UX. Some of them don't. And please know and understand that a, a UX persona and a marketing persona are different. And then other people are starting to use personas now in within their disciplines. And, and some people try to mix and match or try to use them across the board. You can't do that. UX personas are helping us to understand different elements about the users 
so that we can better represent them and account for them in the work that we are doing. That is the best high-level way that I can describe what a persona is. Uh, I have created personas in the past, share this with you. Uh, it will have the, a picture that represents the individual because we relate to, to imagery. So not good to use cartoons, better to use a, a person. It can be a stock image, uh, just not something campy or, or, or uh, cheesy. You don't want to do that. But something that really represents the person that you're trying to, to help everyone see. You'll have their name. You may have their age, a few demographics, things of that nature. We don't need to know what kind of car they like unless it's relevant to what you're designing for. We don't need to know what their hobbies are unless it has something to do with what you're designing for. These are some of the things that you'll see. One of the more popular things that's happening today, it has to do with uh, what is, what are this person's favorite brands? What in the world? That has nothing to do with pretty much any personas, but it's starting to become popular. And there's a lot of people that are trying to educate folks in the UX community that don't know anything about UX themselves. And that's one of the ways that all of this bad information is getting out there. And this is the age of misinformation. So it really pays to have on that hat of critical thinking at all times. But again, the persona, some, some things that I've done in the past, put it out here for people's consideration. If we're concerned about people and their, their, their technological prowess, if you will, then I worked on a project where that was something that was that was critical. I made sure to have a gauge within the persona that showed some people were very, very sharp. They had a really high technical aptitude. And then there were some other people that might be middle of the road and some people that might be low. Just to, to help people to understand that the people that are going to be using the solution pretty much run the gamut and we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. When I came onto that particular project, initially, they only had one persona. Personas are a representation of your user base. And no user is not a bad word, just to throw that. We'll talk about that another time. But we need to make sure, who are we designing for? Because too many times people are focused on the stakeholders, they're focused on the hippo, and they miss the boat. Make sure that you structure personas properly, realistically, remove the fluff, and make sure that these personas will help you to have those people that are going to be using your product in mind, and it helps to keep your work user-centered. We'll talk a little bit more about personas as we get into to research next week, but folks, that's all the time we have for today. Again, be on the lookout. We're going we're gonna to have a little interlude with uh, an interview in an upcoming episode uh but that's it so until next time this is darren hood the host of the world of ux happy uxing everybody thanks for joining us for this session of cx of m radio be sure to rate review and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources